team, yeah, we off the leash. You could look us in the eyes and see we have peace. Black and gold, that's the colors when we go to war. When we step up on that field, you go hear my roar. We them tiger cats, we them, we them tiger cats. We them tiger cats, we them, we them tiger cats. Yeah, nobody hitting harder. Better keep your guard up, cause with everything we draw, we can score it when we wanna. Welcome to Podski Wee Wee. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Mike Graham. Mike, the Thai Cats are off this week, but we are not. We have a fun show planned for today. So instead of belaboring the point and jabbering on about nothing, let's just get right into it, shall we? No news to discuss, obviously, with the Thai Cats, though, being almost done half of their season. We're eight games in, so we're almost at the midway point of the season. Thought now would be a pretty good time to kind of take a look at the state of the team, kind of a you know, state of the franchise, the pulse of the franchise, whatever you want to call it. They currently sit at three and five, but thanks to their two wins over the Ottawa Red Blacks, they are currently occupying a playoff spot, but it has been a rough start to the season. Injuries have taken their toll. We've seen numerous high-priced acquisitions that we that the team acquired over the winter go down with injury, most notably Bo Levi Mitchell. So let's just start with kind of your general thoughts on the Ticat season so far. I don't want to pepper your opinion in any way, but the word that comes to mind when I think of this team, if I had to do like a one word association with it, disappointing. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. Uh, the expectations were really high going into the season. You're bringing a guy like Bo Levi Mitchell, a, a two time great cup champion, a two time most outstanding player. And, you know, along the defensive line, you bring in a lot of people. The offensive line looks good. This whole team on paper you know, look like they could contend for first place in the East. And obviously that hasn't happen, happened yet, but three and five is not very good, but it could be a lot worse, I guess, if you want to look at it on the bright side. You you tend to be a little more pessimistic of this team. It's it's kind of your gimmick. You like to be, you know, Mr. Nine and nine. I mean, based on what we've seen this year, nine and nine would be a gift, quite frankly, but when you looked at the schedule, you you, you mentioned the team on paper at the start of the year, like it looked good i was at training camp almost every day and was very impressed with what i saw then the team hits the field and they hit a rough pack they get and we kind of excused it the first two games against winnipeg and toronto both on the road both when i mean winnipeg wasn't coming off rest but it was the first game of the season the argos had a bye week one it's like okay we can kind of see where this is going so even at 0-2, I think we came on here, weren't really concerned. Didn't like what we had seen, especially in that second game, Bo got hurt. If you would have looked at that, if I would have told you at the beginning of the year, 3-5 and five is where they'll sit heading into their bye just ahead of Labor Day. Would that have been acceptable to you? Would you have been surprised by that? Because I have said numerous times, and if you can go back into our archives, I said this going into the season, I did think this team would struggle early. But I do think that the injuries the team has suffered has, has even pushed this team further back than I thought they'd be. I thought by by around now, they'd be starting to hit their stride and putting together like three wins in four or 
five wins in, in seven games sort of thing. And that hasn't really been the case. They've done a good job of kind of beating up on and beating up might not even be the right word, but finding ways to beat the teams kind of in their tier. But if I would have told you, like I said, at the beginning of the season, they're going to be three and five going to the second bye week. Would that have been an acceptable place for you? Or did you think that this team should be somewhere in like the Argos, BC Lions, Winnipeg Blue Bombers territory, five and three, six and two, so on and so forth? I think that it's kind of a predictable record at this point in time in the season. The Tiger Cats, besides, you know, that 15 and three season a couple of years ago or more than a couple of years ago now, it's just they just are off to slow starts. It's just they can't get it together early on in the season. And that, and there's a Marriott of reasons why that is happening this year. You mentioned the injuries and, and people might look at that as an excuse and, and it might be one, but it's a fact, right? I mean, Bo Levi Mitchell hasn't had a lot of time to play. And even though he's looked terrible when he's in there, it, it would only help him. If he was healthy and he played more with this team, played more in this offense. And it's just, the I think the most disappointing thing to me is the defense this year. Because I thought that, okay, even if the offense is slow to start, the defense will keep us in games. And the defense hasn't been doing that for the most part. The defense is near the bottom of the league in most statistical categories. So they've been a huge disappointment for me this season. So looking at how they got to this point. We're going to do a position by position breakdown in a second, but I just got one more question for you. Their three wins have come against two against Ottawa, one against Edmonton. I think ahead of the season, we looked at those and said, yeah, those should be victories. They've lost to Toronto twice, Winnipeg once and Montreal twice. Is it really those Owls games that are kind of the, and they didn't look good in either of the games against Montreal. They lost them both at home is it is it those two games where you kind of look at this team and that's where the concern comes in that maybe they're not just going to be very good this year? Because I think if if you would have just gone by based on skill and talent alone, three losses was the best case scenario, I think. Losing both to Toronto and the one to Winnipeg, I think, were givens. Even if you thought I, – I thought the Argos might take a step down this year. I wasn't sold on Chad Kelly. I was wrong about that. Ryan Dinwiddie has proven to be a very good head coach. I was incorrect on that as well. I had my doubts about him. But you look at the the outcomes that we've seen so far. Is it those two games against Montreal, losing those both at home? Is that where sort of the concern sets in? And those are the two games that, I mean, had they won those games, now we're talking five and three, we're having a different mm-hmm. conversation, right? But they lose those. And now you see that they're not only are they behind the the elites of the league, they're now kind of behind the second tier of teams as well. So is, is, is it those Montreal losses that really kind of stick in your craw? Yeah, those ones are the ones that sting. Even if they would have split those two games, we would have yeah. been sitting at four and four and we would have been okay. And we still would have had a chance with them in the season series. But yeah, those two losses, especially being at home, both of those losses, it really hurts to a team that is mediocre at best. I think at this point, maybe they can get better as the season goes along. They're certainly better than the Thai Cats at this point in time. But I I would agree with you that they're in kind of that mediocre pack of teams that I thought going into the season or even going into those games, Hamilton should have at least gotten one victory out of those two. All right, so let's move on. Now let's look at the position groups here. We're going to start, of course, as we always do with the quarterbacks. Ticats have started three different quarterbacks this season. Bo Levi Mitchell has started three games. Matthew Schiltz has started three games. And rookie Taylor Powell has started two. At times, all three guys have looked pretty good. At times, all three guys have looked downright awful. Bo has thrown nine interceptions in less than three full games of action. 
Schultz has been up and down as he's been his entire career. Looks wonderful one game, looks miserable the next. And Taylor Powell has looked like a rookie, which I think is fair. I don't think we saw a lot of growth in him from his first start to his second start, but I'm not going to be too harsh on a rookie quarterback who, quite frankly, wasn't really even in the team's plans at the start of the season. He came in, if, if you recall, I think it was four or five days into training camp when Jamie Newman left and hasn't returned for mysterious reasons that of course have never been, never been discussed or talked about, but he's, I'm just going to go on the assumption that he's no longer with the team and won't be back with the team. So they didn't really even think Taylor Powell would be on this team, but I think he's done an admirable job. How do you feel about the level of play that we've seen out of the quarterback position so far this year? Again, much like with this team, I think this is going to be an inherently negative sort of exercise we're doing here, but I'm just curious, is has, has it been, are, is it more good than bad or more bad than good for you? I'd have to say it's more bad than good, especially out of uh, Bo and Schultz. You know, Bo, obviously. Guys, you expected uh, to be better, right? Exactly. And, and Powell, yeah. I'm with you. Like he, it's his first two starts in this league and he's looked, you know, pretty good at times. Now the second half of the game, uh, the most recent game, you know, they didn't, move the ball very well in the second half and that's that's not all on him obviously but if I always have to if I had to grade them I'd give I'd give Bolivai Mitchell like a C minus or a D I'd give Schultz uh, the same and then I'd give Powell probably a, a C because the expectations weren't as high for him obviously and he's played pretty well yeah I that's that's fair I, I I'm in the same camp if we're grading these guys Mitchell to me is a D I think Schultz I'd put it a C minus just because I think he's been a little better and Powell, I'd probably put it a C, maybe even a C plus. But none of these guys have really blown the doors off anybody. They've had moments where they've looked competent. They've had moments, more moments, I should say, where they've looked terrible. But I'm kind of discounting Taylor Powell from this because I just don't think it's fair to expect a rookie quarterback to come in and, and perform. We, we rarely, if ever, see a newcomer to this league. And people, I'm sure, are any Argos fans or listener going, well, Chad Kelly started uh, less than 10 games. But Chad Kelly sat behind a guy for a year, was on a really good team. You know what I mean? Like maybe, I mean, we saw it with Dane Evans. Dane Evans didn't look great in his one start when he was uh, thrust into that position as a backup in 2018. And then in 2019, after he had been with the team for a year, had had a chance to learn the system, even though they changed the system in 2019 because June Jones left and Tommy Condell came in. He was able to thrive. You guys need, especially American players, we see all the time, they need that extra year, some that extra time to kind of really process the differences in the game. Because I think we we as fans, and I'll, I'll speak for myself, I won't speak for you, but as a fan of like most football, watching American and Canadian football, we kind of take for granted the differences in the two games because it's like, oh, it's an oblong ball and it, you know, it's a hundred plus yard field and touchdowns are seven points and field goals are three points. And but the the nuanced differences that players talk about but that we I, I think sometimes we maybe either discount or take for granted does play a factor in some of these guys when they've played 11 men 100 yards not a 65 yard wide field but with Mitchell and, and with Schultz it's been Mitchell especially has been a huge disappointment I don't know if we maybe expected too much given how his time in Calgary came to an end it, he didn't look good there we all kind of I think I think had Mitchell stayed in Calgary I believe we would we wouldn't have been as high on him as we were because I think we wanted to believe that he could turn the clock back but it certainly feels as if what we saw in 2021 and 2022 with the Stampeders 
is who Bo is as a quarterback now. And I have to ask you, they've tied themselves to him for three years. I know they can get out of it. There's no guaranteed money or anything like that. They, they, every year he gets a big bonus at the start of the year, but you can, if you don't have him on the roster, you can get out of it. So they, they could get out of this after one year with having sunk basically half a million dollars into him. Are you comfortable with him being the guy going forward? Or would do you think this team might once again be in the market to make a quarterback change in the offseason? I'm not sure I'm comfortable with anybody on this team going forward at this point. I mean, um, no, well, but that's perfectly I, fair. That's perfectly I, fair. I just, I, my confidence has been lost at this moment in this team, but I want to see Bo, like, let's see what he looks like when he comes back. And, and I know that everyone, you know, rightfully so he's looked like trash. Let's not, you know, sugarcoat it. He's been terrible in these first three or so games with the tiger cats that he's played. But I still think he gives us the best chance to win. And I like, I'm not, I don't think they're going to win a great cup this year anymore. Um, I, I just, you know, I know it's still early and all that stuff, but I just don't, the coaching staff, the players on this team, just everything is, isn't good enough. So, but I do think you give him those five or six games to show you if he has anything left. And then if he doesn't, if he looks terrible in those games, maybe maybe it's time to cut bait with him. Maybe it's time to cut bait with everyone and just start over try, like somewhat of a rebuild after the season if it goes really, really bad. Yeah, because it certainly feels like the team loaded up to win this year. And if that doesn't happen, I could see a number of veteran players let go and this team kind of maybe go into the wilderness for a couple of... It's a CFL, so it's really hard to be bad for multiple years. I mean, Edmonton and Ottawa would disagree with that, but... You can turn things around pretty quickly yep. in the CFL with good scouting and who know who knows what'll happen in the offseason with the coaching staff and with the front office. Like there could be changes there as well, especially if this team that had great cup aspirations, winning the cup at home, failed to live up to them. So it could be an interesting offseason. I do think that Bo gets even if he doesn't look great, I still think they probably bring him back for at least one yep. more season. Let mm-hmm. him be fully immersed in this offense in the offseason. The thing with him, though, is his health. I, it's one of those things. And because it, it's 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 not that he's injury prone or or anything like that. It's that it's different things that keep happening to him. You know what I mean? Like in Calgary, it was a shoulder. And in Calgary, it was a shoulder. Then earlier this mm-hmm. year, it was a groin. And then this last one's his lower leg and ankle. And it's like it, it just seems as if it's it's he's just snake bit. Like if it was constantly the same body part, if he kept like Jeremiah Mazzoli, for instance, as much as I love him. It's constantly knee and ankle issues with him. It's he tore his ACL with Hamilton. He, it's lower leg stuff. He broke his leg last year. He popped his Achilles this year. Like it's consistently the same area of the body. So that worries me more than it does with a guy who say misses six games because of a what he'll miss with it now with a broken leg and then misses another four games because of a groin and then misses time in Calgary with a shoulder or has a concussion or like it's, if it's a bunch of different injuries that, that it concerns me in the way, because it's like, it's their whole body now that apparently is, is a little more fragile, but it's not as concerning because it's like, it's not as if he's, he can't throw the foot. You know what I mean? Like it's a consistent shoulder problem. It's never going to get better. He's done. It's a consistent leg problem. It's always going to be there. You know what I mean? It's something different. Like you said, kind of freaky. So I do think that he comes back next year, regardless of how well the team does, because I think they'll give him one more opportunity. I don't know, though, if they once again disappoint next season, if we see a third year of Bo. I think that might be the rip the Band-Aid off. Because a lot of these guys that they signed last year, they signed a two-year deal. So 
I know that we we as fans and we as we as commentators were focused on this season because of where the Grey Cup is being held. I do wonder if this team had a two-year plan and they'll go into that next year and then if it doesn't work again, then it's time to kind of tear this thing down and build it back up from scratch. Yeah, it's like uh, we're, you know, they they bring in new coaches and if that fails, then we'll have to hear about the new coaches and how they suck and all this stuff constantly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's uh, I could see that you bringing them back again because, I mean, there is the excuses there, right? You, you have all these injuries and they're like, gosh, man, if we just had our guys, maybe we could make a run at it. So you could use that excuse this year for next year and see what happens if you can stay healthy. I could totally see that happening. Yeah, we'll definitely be talking about injuries to other areas when we get to other groups in a second. Let's move on to the running backs here. And as we thought at the start of the year, the running game has almost been exclusively powered by James Butler. He has 86 carries for 406 yards. And the next closest Ticats rusher has 10 carries for 68 yards. Mike, do you want to guess who that is? I said rusher. I didn't say running back, but it's the Butler has 406 yards on the ground. The next closest Ticats player is 68 yards. Who do you think that is? Hmm, I was going to say a quarterback, Powell. Good job. It's Taylor nice. Powell. Taylor Powell is the nice. second leading rusher on this team. I, I don't know if you know this stat, but they said it on the TSM broadcast when you were at the game the one time. But his total rushing yards in college, minus 150-something. Oh, geez. He must have got sacked a game. lot then. Yeah, I guess so. He, he, he must, wasn't much of a runner in college, but he's been showing that, you know, he he's not fast or anything, but he can do it if necessary. Yeah, it's just kind of crazy. The, the third leading rusher on this team, Matthew Schiltz. So this yeah. has been the James Butler show. Uh, mm. In two games since returning for injury, Sean Thomas Erlington has not even touched the ball. So the running game has essentially been exclusively all on the back of James Butler. So I guess we won't spend too much time here because we're really just going to talk about one player. How would you rate Butler's first six games with the Ticats after coming over in free agency from the BC Lions? Are you happy with the production he's got? Are you glad he's here? Or do you agree with all the people when the team made the signing that this was a stupid decision to give him money and they never should have brought him in in the first place? No, I'm glad he's here. I I, I mean, we always knew that he wasn't going to, in this offense, he wasn't going to be leading the league in rushing. I don't think, unless did I predict that at the start of the season? I don't know. I don't think, I uh, no, I don't think you predict, no. You, you, okay. I think you had a rushing prediction or a James Butler prediction, but I don't think it was lead the league in rushing. Okay, yeah. So in the Tommy Condell offense, everybody knows that he likes to throw the ball more than he likes to run it. And I've been saying, and we've been saying since the beginning of the season that it wasn't necessarily, you know, he wasn't just brought in to rush the ball and get 1,500 yards on the ground. He was brought in to help protect Bo. He was brought in to catch passes out of the backfield, you know, check downs for Bo, and of course to, to run the ball as well. But I think it was the total package why he was brought in. And people that are like, oh, you know, why was he brought in? He's a running back and, you know, they don't run the ball. I think there was a bigger idea with James Butler than just rushing yards. Yeah, just so you know, last year's leading rusher for the Ticats was Wes Hills with 384 yards. So James Butler Ooh. has already eclipsed that number in... I said six games. I guess I, I meant eight games. He's been he's been here for eight games. No, I, I completely agree with you. The the idea that James Butler is going to be a he gets 25 carries, 20 carries, something like that was never going to happen. A no CFL team really does that anymore. So the idea that Hamilton would bring in Butler to do that is just silly to me that if that was if that was someone's thought. 
But I think he's come as advertised. I've been very happy with his production. He's shown that he one of the things you talked about was his his job pass blocking. And I think he's done a very good he's I think he's had to do more of it than than you would want because the offensive line hasn't been that great. But I think he's been really good in the run game. I think he's been really good in the pass game. I think I think he's done his job, the the one that they're paying him this money to do. Maybe on this offense, there's not a lot of guys you can say you haven't been disappointed in, but he's definitely one of them. I know he's had some down games. He had a couple of, uh, I think out of the, his five starts, I think three of them have been sub-20-yard rushing games, but that's a lot of that's due to the time of the game. A lot of that's due to the opponent they're facing. A lot of that's due to them being down by 15, 16, 20 points and abandoning the run game. But I think when when Butler is involved, whether it's in the pass game or the run game, and the games are close, he's making a difference. So I'm I'm actually I'm, I'm I think all the people that were against this signing, even though it hasn't led to wins, which I'm not saying it should have, but I don't think you can really fault the team at all for having made this move. He's been the rushing attack for the Tie Cats this year by a wide margin. So what would this rushing game look like if not for James Butler? You know. <laughs> Yeah, and you can't rack up uh, large amounts of yards if you're not getting the ball handed off to you. So, and, and like you said, he's already has more rushing yards than anyone did last year in Hamilton. So, I, I'm not sure if you'll end up with a thousand yards rushing or not. But uh, he's it, pretty close okay. to being on that pace. He's like, I think he's fifty yeah. something ish yards a game. So it's like he's he's a little under that. But I mean, one big game, and I'm I'm sure that during the season at some point he's going to have 125, 140 yard. I mean, he had one against what was it Edmonton? I think he had like mm-hmm. 100 130 yards or something like that. So he'll probably have one or two more of those. He he'll probably get to a thousand yards, which would be the first thousand yard rusher for the Tie Cats in like a dozen years. So I think he's come as advertised. Uh, I've I've been very happy with his presence on the team. Uh, receiver. Let's talk about receiver next, Mike. This has been a bit of a mixed bag, don't you think? Like we've seen some big games from Tim White and Duke Williams, but we've also seen games from them where they just completely disappear and we don't even see them, especially Tim White. I think he's been the most inconsistent player, offensively speaking, maybe on this team all year. We've seen players like Terry Godwin and Tyreek McAllister step up with some big plays, which has been nice. But you don't want to be relying on those two guys as good as they could be. You want to be relying on the guys like White and Williams. We have not seen the second-year leap that some of us, especially myself, expected from a player like Canadian Keandre Smith. And the rest of Hamilton's Canadian receiving core has been practically invisible. Richie Danny's had a couple of nice plays here and there, but we've seen nothing next to nothing out of Tyler Ternowski. Chris Osikusi doesn't even get on the field anymore. The receiving game, the receiving group has been, again, maybe disappointing is not the right word, but underwhelming, I think, would be a fair statement. So what's your take on what you've seen out of the receiving core so far this year? Um, it's mediocre. Uh, there's some guys that I'd say that, you know, Tim White had a couple good games, but then for the most part, he's been a, a bit of a disappointment. Uh, Duke Williams has been a bit of a surprise, to be honest with you. He's came into this team with, you know, a reputation for being a bit of a, a knucklehead, but he's been great. You know, he hasn't caused any terrible penalties on the field. He hasn't been a distraction in the locker room. From you know, we haven't heard anything about him. So, and he's one dust up. on the there, field. There's, there's been one dust up with Duke. I saw it practice a couple of weeks ago. Him and Tunde Delegate got into it one day, and it was it was it was an ugly incident. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you there's a, here's a nice Patreon plug. If you go to our Patreon, I talked about it at length on one of my episodes uh, that I post over there. But uh, other but it that was it seemed to be a one and done. And then actually last week 
I provide an update on that. Duke made a nice catch on tune day. They dapped each other up and were laughing. So it was clearly one of those things where guys were frustrated or something was said. Mm -hmm. And in the heat of the moment, guys can get after each other, especially when teams are losing. You know what I mean? But that seems to be all water under the bridge. And it was the only sort of thing that we've, I've, I've personally seen from Duke. So considering what we heard about him coming into this season from, especially from Saskatchewan, it, it has been a breath of fresh air. So I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just wanted to give everyone context on, on, it hasn't been perfect, but it's been damn near close. Yeah, and, and I would suggest that, you know, those things happen at practice sometimes. And But, yeah, overall picture, it's been pretty good with him. Uh, I think Terry Godwin has been really good at times. And then other games, you don't really hear from him. So, you know, it's it's hard to judge these receivers with all the injured quarterbacks we've had. You know, we've gone through three already. So, uh, it's tough because it, it's like if Bo's in the game, he seems to target Tim White more. If if Schiltz and Powell in the game, it doesn't seem like they're looking for him as much. So, you know, it's been a, a bit of a mixed bag with all these receivers. But I will say that Keandre Smith, you know, Massive he's had chances. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you. I thought that this would be, you know, the second year where he takes a step up and it's just it hasn't been that. And it seems like when he gets the opportunity, he kind of messes up or, or drops a pass. So he's been a pretty big disappointment this year so far. Yeah. If you go listen to our post game show from this past week's game, the a microcosm of his season was that drop, but Taylor, Taylor Powell escapes pressure in the pocket, steps up and fires an absolute dart right into his chest, bounces off of him, goes incomplete. It's just, he's not consistent enough with his with his hands for my liking and it's it's really unfortunate because I do think he's got all the talent in the world. I saw at camp that he was taking on a bigger leadership role, he was being more vocal and more personable. I just wish that the the stuff I see on the practice field would cuz at practice he's great as like I don't see a lot of drops at practice. I see I see a lot of he doesn't get a lot of targets, but he does make some plays. I just wish that he could translate that into the game because I think he's got the size, speed, and ability to be one of the better Canadian receivers in this league. But yeah, him even maybe even more so than Tim White because I do agree that I think circumstances has made White sort of a less reliable player this year. I think you're right. I think when Bo's in there, he does look White's way, and when it's but the other quarterbacks, I, I will I will say we mentioned on the post game show that uh, we talked about it on the post game show this week. It just seems like he's not Interested. invested. Yeah, yeah yep. he's not invested as much as he should be. He's not putting in the full effort. And, you know, maybe we're wrong on that, but that's just what it seems like. Yeah. Do you think it's possible that this is his last year with the team? I signed a one-year contract, or yep. is that yeah, it? He's, yeah, oh, he's, okay. he's a free agent at the end of the year. Well, it might be if, if, if this is the way that it keeps going, and if we see – you know, it's one thing to not produce, but then it's another thing if if it if your body language is shit and you're not, you know, it doesn't seem like you're putting in the full effort and you're not invested in the team and what's going on. Um, if that continues, then I could see him, you know, moving on or the Ticats moving on from him for sure. All right. Now we're at one of Mike's favorite spots on the team, the offensive line. Well, maybe not the favorite spots on the te- on this version of the team, but his favorite group <laughs> that he likes to discuss this unit, Mike, has been decimated by injuries, seen yeah. by the fact that they have started five different combinations of offensive linemen in eight games this season, and no group has started more than two consecutive games, and only one five-sum has started three total games together. 
Joel Figueroa was injured in week two and remains on the six-game injured list. Kyle Saxlid was hurt in the first game of the season, just as he was a year ago, and he has not played since. Chris Van Zyl has been in and out of the lineup. And the team is cur- currently relying on two young Americans and Brandon Kemp and Kendrick Sartor, who have combined to play in 10 CFL games, with most of them coming this year. Mike, you're our resident O-line expert. How do you feel this group has fared this year up to this point? Honestly, they're, with all the injuries, they've fared pretty well. With those rookie tackles, you know, it, it's tough to be thrown in there and, and perform when you when you haven't played any CFL football and you have, you know, you're facing against, you know, defensive ends in this league that are pretty darn talented around the league. So it's tough to judge because of all the injuries. But with all those injuries, I think they've they've stood up pretty well. Now, they've had some bad games. Don't get me wrong. They, they've they've really hurt this team with some penalties and, uh, you know, just not being able to block that well at times. You know, the running game isn't what it what we'd like it to be, but that's also, you know, a Tommy Condell thing. So we can't really put the blame on them too much. But overall, I think they've been OK with all the injuries. I think they've been OK. And once they get guys back, I think they'll be pretty darn good. But, you know, Figueroa came in and it's like. He had injury problems early on in his career, and it seemed like it wasn't a thing anymore. And obviously, you know, it doesn't really matter <clears throat> what happens in previous years. You, you can get injured at any time. But it, it is a bit of a disappointment to see him go down and not, you know, because he was the prize acquisition of this offensive line, one of the prize acquisitions of this offense in total. So to have him not be in the lineup for so long is a disappointment. Same with Van Zyl. We, we talked about this in the offseason. Is it even worth bringing him back? Because we figured he's gonna he's gonna be on the injured list most of the year, and what has happened? He's been on the injured list. Like it's just very disappointing because I know these guys are super talented offensive linemen and can do a fantastic job if they're in there, but they've just been injured the whole time. Yeah, and the injuries is what has probably had me be more down because I think. The Kemp and, and Sartor combination, I just I just don't think those guys are good enough to play tackle in this in this league. I think we've seen enough out of them that and again, I know it's only it's less than a dozen games combined between the two. And and they weren't expected to be starters this year. They were supposed to be developmental guys. Like neither of these guys were both I think both of these guys started the season on the practice roster and were elevated because Figueroa and Tyrone Riley got hurt. I think this offensive line would be so much better with those two guys there. I, I know captain obvious statement there, but if you're going to start Americans on the line, they have to be superstars. In my opinion, you can't have Jags, just a guy play at these spots because now you're, you're kind of wasting it. Like again, Van Zyl, Van Zyl's, uh, he's been, he's missed a few games due to injury, but I think he's, I think he's suited up for five or six games this year. But they're not using him as a starter. Maybe that's because they're concerned about the the injury potential there. But I think that this offense, even with Kyle Saxon, his thing too, even though he's much younger, I think he's I think he's in his late twenties, like 27, 28 years old. He seems to not be able to stay healthy either. So how much better would this line be if you had Figueroa starting at left tackle, Saxlid starting at right tackle, and Van Zyl backing backing them up? Like I just I, I've been impressed at times by this group and unimpressed at other times. I just think that it's really hard to grade them because with, especially because Figueroa has not been in there and that's just caused shuffling all over the place. But 
when you're an offensive line, we talk about it all the time. We talk about the O-line. You need a cohesive unit. Those guys need to play each other with each other a bunch. Five different starting combinations in eight games. No one can be successful in that. No, it reminds me of the Ken Austin days where it seemed like every week they were switching in tackles or, or switching people around on the offensive line. It's just like, like you said, that's one of the most important positions to get cohesion going, to know what you, the guy beside you is going to do. So it's tough when it's different each and every week. All right, let's flip to the other side of the ball now, and we're going to talk defense. We're going to start with the defensive line. This is another group that has dealt with a fair amount of injuries. Dylan Wynn has still not returned from the injury he suffered late last year. We just saw in this most recent game, Mo Diallo go down with what looks like a pretty serious leg injury. Jagera Davis was apparently hurt, then was traded. That trade was voided because he was hurt when we found out from the doctors in Calgary that they had a torn meniscus. Kwaku Boateng was signed and released before ever playing a game with the team. And then he retired to take a coaching job at Wilfrid Laurier, which is where he played collegiately. There have been some standout performances, however. I think Malik Carney and Trey Crawford have both been allowed to now play more, and I think they've shown pretty well that they can play at this level. I think Casey Sales has been fairly solid in the middle of the defense. I think Ted Laurent has looked like him five years ago. I think he's been playing some of the best football of his of his career, this late stage of his career. I won't say of his career. You know, 2013 to 2015, Ted Laurent was unstoppable. He's not that anymore, but... For a guy in his mid-30s who's been on the chopping block, it seems, every year since probably we got back from the from the missed year. Yeah, just on our be, chopping block. <laughs> Not yeah, on their yeah. chopping block, I that's guess. That's true. That's true. But he he, he but he's, he's still producing at a, at a really high yep. level this year, which is not what you'd expect from a guy who's like 34, 35 years old. But this is a defense that has allowed the third most rushing yards, which is not something we're used to seeing from the Ticats. A lot of that is due to... Less than stellar play on the defensive line, in my opinion. So what are your thoughts? You know, I know you love offensive line. Defensive line might be your second favorite thing. So what are your thoughts about what we have seen out of this group so far this season? If we're taking out all context, you know, with the injuries and all that, it's been pretty disappointing because we talked about it in the offseason, like, oh, they're loading up on the defensive line. This yeah. is good. They're going to get pressure. You know, this is going to help out the secondary. And that has not occurred this season. The, the pressure isn't there. Uh, they've had some good games, don't get me wrong. Like, Carney had a couple sacks in the game against Ottawa, I believe. And there's been some good performances individually, but as a whole, pretty disappointing for me. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. But like you said, out of context, sure. If this if mm. this defense started the season with Dylan Wynn, if they got a rejuvenated Jagarit Davis, if Kwaku Boateng was healthy, like, I don't think we're having a disappointing conversation about the defensive line. But like I said, the injuries have allowed for some other guys to step up. I'm actually, it's nice to see Carney because Carney was one of those guys they re-signed and it's like, oh, they they think they have something in him. And it looks like they they actually might. And then Trey Crawford was a guy who spent a lot of time on the practice roster, is finally given a shot. Like we don't often see this team over the years find these. We we, we had in the past, but in the last few years, it's, it's been a lot of, well, let's bring in guys from elsewhere who have been great, you know what I mean? And and letting their own guys go, Lorenzo Malden being the the prime example of that. They let Julian Hauser go this year to bring in a guy like Davis, although whether Hauser wanted to stay is up for debate. I, I've seen some comments both ways there. But getting some of these younger guys a chance to, to play, like even Mo Diallo, who I don't think is maybe necessarily a starting caliber guy, but he has shown that he has a... There, there's... 
he's on the team he can contribute in some way maybe not necessarily as an every down guy but as a guy that can that can at least spot start or or make plays when when called upon every now and then so yeah i it hasn't been what we expected back in may but i think at the same time you run down the laundry list of guys that haven't played and with the exception of davis who's just was a disappointment even when he was playing I think this defensive line looks a lot different if we're rolling with the mm-hmm. with the, with Win and and Boateng out there doing their thing. I I just think it, it's it's rough to to give them too much heat simply because it's again once again like with a lot of parts of this team not the group we thought we'd see when the season started you know. Yeah, exactly, and it's it's not like I'm saying they made bad signings because I don't think they did like bringing a guy back, like even with Jaguar Davis with his down season in, in Toronto, you know, you bring him in and you, 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 you'd expect him to, to bounce back, but that just wasn't the case. And then with all the injuries that, you know, with Boateng retiring and, and then Dylan Wynn not being in the, in the mix yet, it's, uh, it's tough to blame the guys, you know, Steinauer and the guys in charge because they've just been dealt a, a bad hand in that position group. All right, so let's talk about linebackers now. I think it's, you know what, I'll get your take on this, but I'll say it anyway. I think the linebacking group has fairly consistently been the best group on the team on defense so far this year, in my opinion. I think Jameer Thurman's been a solid addition taking over for Jovan Santos Knox. Chris Edwards, when he's not taking stupid penalties, has been a playmaking presence most weeks. Simone Lawrence, he's shown flashes of his old self, but I think it's fair to say that we're now seeing a once great player on the downside of his career. We haven't seen much out of Kyle Wilson as kind of that that fourth guy in the mix here, which I think is a shame because I think he could be a difference maker if he was given more snaps. What about you, Mike? Have you liked what you've seen in the linebacker group this year? Has it been have, – have, have, would you rate them highly? Would you rate them lowly, kind of in the middle? What, what's your take on the linebacker so far? I'm with you. I think they're the the best out of all the defense this year. The, the position groups, which you might know, be damning with faint praise, because it's like the defensive line yeah. will get to the secondary second haven't been great. But I do mm-hmm. think that, 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 like I remember, someone made a comment to us on the post game show about uh, who was who were the two free agents, Duke and two. You mentioned that might have been Chris Edwards that, and didn't mention Jameer Thurman. I think Jameer Thurman's been really solid. Like he's not a flashy player. He doesn't. Like he can make, he's made some big plays for this team, tip passes that led to interceptions and all that other sort mm-hmm. of stuff, but he's not going to get a ton of sacks. He's just, he's going to get a bunch of tackles. You know, he's going to do what, you know, your prototypical middle linebacker does. I think he's been really solid though. Like, I don't think, I, I don't think they made a mistake moving on from Jovan Santos Knox to bring Jameer Thurman. I, at worst, it's, it's a, it's an even trade at best. I think Thurman's been a little bit better, especially because Santos Knox has been hurt. But I, again, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's uh, I think they've been good and you know, they, Chris Edwards has probably been the best out of all of them, um, from what I can see. You know, Jameer Thurman's been great, too. But um, Simone Lawrence has been good out there, nothing to write home about. But as a group, you know, I, w- I would give them a pretty high grade. I think they've been solid. I think they've done their jobs. And uh, the problem on defense isn't because of them. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's move on to the secondary then, since we don't have really much to say about the linebackers. Much like the the both offensive and defensive lines, secondary has seen a lot of shuffling as the season has gone on. Kenneth George Jr., Javion Elliott, and Richard Leonard have all started all eight games while the rest of the unit has been in flux. They have started four different groups, or they, they did start four different groups over the first five games before seemingly settling on what their current group is. 
The changes seemed necessary because the Ticats have not been good against the pass. They've given up the third most pass yards in the league this year. Part and parcel with the defensive line. We thought the, a better defensive line would lead to the secondary looking better. That hasn't been the case because the defensive line hasn't lived up to their, their billing, but the, I don't think the secondary has either. So what are your thoughts on the secondary group? A little bit disappointing, a lot disappointing. What do you think? It's a little bit disappointing. Uh, you know, I can't heap a ton of hate on them because like you said, the defensive line just isn't getting to the quarterback and it's not just all about sacks. It's just, you know, they haven't been getting a lot of pressures on them. They haven't been making quarterbacks uncomfortable. And obviously that helps out the secondary quite a bit, but I've been kind of disappointed in the Canadians in the secondary a little yep. bit this season, cast and Tonis and Adele K, you know, they've been shifted around a little bit at times, but we thought like, they could play out of position and do a, a really good job because we've seen it in the past that they not not in a lot of games but at times one or two games they've done pretty well out of position and that has not been the case this year and overall the secondary has been you know not that great it's uh they went they went young with a lot of guys you know Richard Leonard has been pretty good I can't get a, a real feel for how Elliott's played but I wouldn't be I'm not very happy with the secondary so far this season. No, I'm I'm not either. Although I do think that we've seen Kenneth George Jr. get better as the season yeah, has he's gone back on. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a good sign for the future of this team. Maybe not for the immediate future as in this season, but for a year or so down the line, that might be a really good thing. And, and I'm with you. I, I don't think Katzentonis. I think he's been better. But he's had some rough spots, especially this most recent game. I don't think Tunde, I, I thought he could play the halfback role. I, I now will not even now, I don't think we know he's not really built for that. So it, it has been a little bit disappointing and uh, it'll be interesting to see how they maybe make some changes to this group going forward because they've seemingly given up on Lawrence Woods as a corner, which is. I mean, not that surprising. Uh, he looked good in the preseason, but he didn't look great in games. So it's uh, it's been a mixed bag here, much like with most of this team. And again, it, it feels like we're being really down on it. But I mean, they're three and five for a reason. And it's the, the groups on this team are just not doing what they're supposed to be doing. One area, though, that has been, I think, pretty decent most of the year, functional, at least as special teams. Uh, I believe they've given up just the one return touchdown, which was that dubious one against Montreal where it probably should have been a block in the back and not allowed to count, but it did. They haven't taken one to the house themselves on a return, but they do have a blocked punt for a touchdown. They've been routinely excellent in kick and punt coverage. One of my stars of the season, maybe if he's eligible for rookie of the year, would get my vote. He's already pretty much locked in for my vote for special teams player of the year for the tie cats. And that's rookie, uh, Cathal flowers Lloyd. He leads the league in special teams tackles. He had another four against Montreal this past week, Mark Leggio, who has kind of made most fans completely forget about Seth small has hit all, but one of his field goals, Bailey Flint has been fairly good at punting the ball and the return game has been solid with Tyreek McAllister making a couple of big returns. Looks poised to break one eventually. I know he had a return touchdown called back on a Morana. Again, we talk about penalties with this team, and we're going to talk about that because we're going to do coaches, co the coaching staff, and I'm sure that's what everyone's waiting to hear us rip into. But McAllister had a touchdown called back against Edmonton because of a ridiculous holding call that didn't need to happen. Am I wrong to think that this group has been the most consistent game in and game out that the Ticats have had this year? What say you? 
you're, you're not wrong at all. I think the it's offense great. and and defense has been uh, tremendously inconsistent, and the special teams has been very consistent. Um, you mentioned the kicking, you mentioned the coverage, you mentioned the return teams. Uh, they've all been good, and there's been little sprinkles of you know. Reinbold's kind of stuff or uh, Craig Butler kind of stuff from uh, left over with the onside punts and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think they, they, they've been, yeah, the best unit out of all, out of all three. That is, that is a great thing to hear, but also a sad indictment of the other two positional, like yeah. the offensive, yeah. like the, the you special You can't teams. win with just special teams. You need, no. you need at least two of the three to, to get some wins. Right. I mean, we've seen it in the past with teams winning great cups with great special teams and great defense and like a mediocre offense. I think of the, the Toronto Argonauts of, uh, you know, the Damon Allen days, they had a tremendous return game. They had a really solid defense and an okay offense, but they, they, they were add two out of three. You can't win with just one out of three. No, not at all. Okay. Now we're going to get to the last group here. And like I said, just a few seconds ago, this is probably the one that people are waiting for us most to talk about. And that is the coaching staff. Mike, I'm just going to run down some stats here. You did this. I don't remember if it was on the pod or if it was on the post-game show, but you did this. I'm, I am got. I did some research today. I'm going to run down what we have here. Ticats are the most penalized team. They've allowed the most points. They've allowed the most offensive touchdowns. They've allowed the second most net yards. They are second to last in opposing quarterback efficiency. That is not a good thing. Being You want to be up at the eighth and opposing quarterback efficiency is bad. Second and opposing yeah. quarterback efficiency is good. They are eighth. That's not good. Offensively, they have scored the, they have the few third fewest points for, they are sixth in net offense. They are ninth in rushing yards. Although even with James Butler, who we praised earlier, that shouldn't be a surprise given that the Ticats are also, I believe they've rushed the ball the fewest times of any, any team this year. They are ninth in yards per rush, which is a bit of an indictment on James Butler. They are sixth in completion percentage. Yes, some of these are player-centric, but some of these are also coaching. Mike, is there any conclusion to draw other than this coaching staff has been abjectly abysmal this year? I think that's the only conclusion. I don't think anyone on this coaching staff has been particularly good. You know, maybe Reinbold. Special teams, maybe. Yeah, but you mentioned the, the and especially the penalties thing. Like, that is coaching, right? And yep. you've seen it. We've seen dumb penalties. We've seen inopportune penalties where we're marching down the field and they take two procedure calls in a row or something like that. Just drive-killing penalties that are, are really hurting this team. And that's coaching, right? I mean, it's just the def- – I'm more – and maybe we'll get to it here. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. But, yeah, it's it's been bad, real bad coaching. Where do you stand on cleaning this slate after the season? What do you – if this let's say this team finishes nine and nine, finishes third in the East, gets bounced in the semifinal like they did last year, are you running it back with these guys, or are you wiping the slate clean and getting rid of everybody? We'll take the coaching cap stuff out of it because that complicates things, obviously. Right. If you had to, ma- if if you're making changes, are you are is it a full scale change? Are you keeping Steinhauer, but maybe finding a GM to take that off his plate? Are you keeping one of the two coordinators? I guess one of the three coordinators. Like, what are you, what are you doing with this coaching staff after the season? If this if this team continues to hover around this 500 ish, little under 500 ish mark, I've said that I'm not sure if Steinhauer is a great head coach. Uh, recently, maybe that's because he's wearing too many hats. Maybe if he was just the head coach 
and he could just concentrate on that, he could be a darn good one. But I just think that with the VP of football operations cap or hat on and the head coach hat on and he's supposed to be a defensive guy and maybe he's, he doesn't have enough time to work with Mark Washington on the defense. Cause I'm thinking with Mark and Orlando on this team, if they put their heads together, they can create Should a, be a good, defense. good defense, right? So maybe because the, the thing with Steinhauer's defenses back when he was a DC here, they yeah. were situationally very good. We didn't mm-hmm. see these second and thirteens. Oh, here's a 15 yard, you know, yeah. crossing route that picks up a first down. They were very good in those situational spots, even when the team wasn't necessarily like, like, do you remember? I mean, the Ticats, when he was defensive coordinator here, Ken Austin, there were some lean years, especially, I mean, we saw it fall off a cliff when he left after 2016, but there were some lean years here with the defense, but, or with the team, I should say, but the defense never seemed like Steinhauer, even though the team wasn't winning, you know, 10 plus, 12 plus games every year. They won, I think 10 twice under Stein or under uh, Austin. Most of the time they were hovering around the 500 mark. You never really, the, the momentum for Steinhauer to become a head coach in this league was always still there. And that's because the defenses were still really good. I'm with you. I don't understand if those two guys can put their heads together. This should be a good unit. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we can touch on uh, Tommy Condell. Of course. I, Listen, I, I don't think he's great. I think he he's okay. I think he's a good coordinator. But I, I don't think he's the main problem. I think I think Mark Washington should be getting more of the blame than Tommy Condell. And I know that's a crazy thought to a lot of Ticat fans. And I get that. You know, the offense hasn't been great. Tommy's been here for quite a long time. I know that he left for a little bit, but he came back. Um, I think if all the pieces were in place, this could be a pretty good offense with Tommy Condell's ideas in place. The defense, you know, it should be good right now, and it's not. So um, I would, honestly, as a whole, if I would keep Orlando, but I would take away the VP of football operator. I would stick a GM there, in there, an actual GM that we can point Kyle at. Walters, like, okay, go, get Kyle, this, go pay yeah. Kyle Walters a boatload of money to be the GM of this team after he doesn't resign to Winnipeg. That would be yeah. my... Not to cut you off, but that's what you do. You, I mean, you can leave. I don't care titles, pay, whatever. Do I? I don't. I don't give a crap. Let Kyle Walters run the front office. Let Orlando Steinhauer run the coaching staff. And in my opinion, you got to find two new coordinators. I, I don't. I I don't say that lightly because I never like to call for people's jobs. But we've seen a regression with these coaches and with this mm-hmm. coaching staff. I think it's time for maybe fresh ideas. And I think you need that maybe maybe even more so than just new people. You need new ideas with 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 these players. So I think we've I think this group has taken this team as far as they can go. I don't necessarily think that means that you burn this whole thing to the ground with the coaching staff. But I think you bring in Kyle Walters. You let him run the show. Look what he did in Winnipeg, acquiring talent, especially Canadian talent, which has been a bit of an issue with the Ticats recently, if we're being honest. They they used to be fairly decent at, at finding Canadian guys, but now the drafts have been a little more missed than hit. He's great at that. He's got a reputation for building a team. You let him in charge of the front office. You let Orlando in charge of the football team. They can collaborate on building a roster. I think this could this could be turned around very quickly if you do something like that. Just my just one man's opinion. Yeah, yeah, I can I can get with that. And it'd just be nice to know that there's a GM in place. Like this whole you know, mismatch of, you know, this guy's doing it and plus this guy, plus, you know, there's four GMs or whatever. 
that's fine, but it just doesn't seem to be working. Like, just get a guy that knows what he's doing. You know what another option is? Yep. Give it to Ed Herbie. Yeah. Ed Herbie's here. He's like assistant associate general manager or some some such nonsense like that. Make him just make him the GM. He clearly has a good relationship with Orlando Steinhauer, or he wouldn't have come in in this role to after being a GM in BC and Edmonton. We've seen him build a champion. Look, we're about to talk about we're about to power rank these the uh, nine head coaches in a second. Even though we're, we've already done about an hour already, we're going to go long today, folks. Even though it's a bye week, got tons of time to listen to the show. But I feel like this is important to talk about. Ed Hervey, we've seen what Chris Jones has built now in Edmonton without Ed Hervey. It's a disaster. Ed Hervey deserves yep. a boatload of credit for turning because that Elks team before he got there, if you recall, when Eric Tillman was the general manager, they sucked. And he was able to turn that team around in like two years, turn him into a Grey Cup champion. He's use him. Like my dream is Kyle Walters just because of what he's built sustained sustainably built in in Winnipeg versus Hervey kind of can rub people the wrong way. Sometimes I've, I've been told, but he's still a really good general manager. So if you can't get Kyle Walters, make it Hervey, the general manager, let him build the team. Like there are guys out there. It doesn't, it's not necessarily you have to go retread. You know, it's not like the, the early two thousands when this team was trying to find all the oldest guys they could, your Charlie Tafts and guys like that to, you know, you, you bring as, as good as he was for the team. You bring Bobble Bilovich essentially out of retirement to run the, the to run the team. You don't have to go that route, and you don't have to go the route of giving all the power to one guy. I, I guess teams do this now because of that stupid coaching cap, so hopefully that CFL operations cap will be ab- obliterated and abolished this offseason. I doubt it will be, but we can always hope, right? There's guys out there. There's one in the building right now that can do this job. So in my opinion, I think that's where you you make the change. You you get a, a real general manager there whose full-time job is just doing the general manager stuff. You let Orlando focus on the coaching, kind of piggybacking on what you said. And then I'm not sure what the solution is at coordinator, but there's a lot of young coaches out there. I'm sure you can find. I mean, the BC Lions plucked Jordan McSimmick out of nowhere. Uh, I mean, he, he was around, obviously, and he was he was, but he became a play caller for the first time last year, and look what he's doing. So there's guys out there that can do this stuff. I don't know. I'm just – I just think a change needs to be done. I think I think this group has taken this team as far as they can. Yeah, there's no easy answers, is there? I mean, no. um, you know, you get rid of the coordinators, you keep Orlando. If Orlando's the problem, then you know, then we're stuck with him for another year. But uh, yeah, there's no. I like that. Like I said, there's no easy answers, and you know, this team might suck for a little bit here. You know, we we went on a run. Uh, we were in four Grey Cups in like ten years. Maybe it's time for us to, uh, and I know there was a, you know, a, a, a shitty year in there where we started 0-8, but we've had a pretty good run here, and maybe it's coming to an end. That's uh, entirely possible. The good, the, the one saving grace here, though, is because you, like, maybe Orlando is the problem, and you keep him one year too long. There's a lot of good young, co- like, off the top of my head, I mentioned Jordan McSimmick, Ryan Phillips, Buck mm-hmm. Pierce, Corey Mace in Toronto. There's not going to be four head coaching vacancies, in my opinion, after this season. You know what I mean? Like Winnipeg's not firing their coach. Toronto's not firing their coach. I highly doubt that BC or Calgary is going to fire theirs. Bob Dice isn't getting fired. Neither is Jason Moss. That's six guys right there. So with those four very capable candidates still still around, even if Hamilton sticks with Orlando, but Edmonton and Saskatchewan fire their guys, well, only two of those guys are going to land jobs, which means two of those guys are going to be available the following year. So there's still 
there's still a parachute here for this team if, if Steinhauer is a problem. I don't necessarily know that Steinhauer is the problem. I don't necessarily think that he is. I just think, like you said at the top here, he's wearing too many hats. And that's not a metaphor. That's legitimately what I think. I think he's he's just he's got too much on his plate. He's too many jobs. I think he needs to focus because when he focus his his first year on the job in 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 2019, he wasn't focusing on the GM stuff. And this team was great. He didn't forget how to coach overnight. He didn't forget how to coach over a number of years. Like the guts of a good coacher can clearly still be there. You don't you don't get to 15 and three and back to back Grey Cups by accident as a coach. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I just feel as if there's uh, something's askew with the with the coaching staff in the front office, and I think I don't. We're not going to get any changes this year. Like during the season, I don't anticipate that. So it's going to be something that's unfortunately going to drag into next year. Now we're going to have a much different conversation if next January, when we come back from our, you know, our postseason break that we take around Christmas time. And this team hasn't made any changes to the coaching staff. I think we're going to go into next season, probably a lot more pessimistic than we would have if we see some changes kind of to the front office and the coaching staff. Yeah. Now I've, I've seen this floated around a little bit and I don't buy into it, but do you buy into the, you know, he didn't get the NCAA job in Washington. Oh, the Washington job, so no, he doesn't care? Just, yeah, he doesn't care. No, I don't, because yeah. I. No, you either. can say a lot of things about him. I think he's way too secretive, but he's he has integrity. He, I don't think that he, w- if he didn't want to be here, he wouldn't be here. I mean, he left yeah. the NCAA to come back Yeah. because he wants to live in Canada. He enjoys living in this area of Canada. He likes the Southern. It's where he spent the vast majority of his playing career and almost his entire coaching career with either the Argos or the Ticats. I mean, I think he played for Ottawa for one season. And then obviously he had the season down South where he was the defensive coordinator of Fresno state. I don't think that that, no, I I've seen that as well. I no, I don't, I don't buy it. If that's the case, yeah. then he's not the man that I think he is. Mm-hmm. So long winded answer short. No, I don't buy that at all. Yeah. I, I just don't. I'm, I'm with you on that one. All right. That went way longer than I anticipated, but we're still going to move on here and we're going to unveil our updated coaches power rankings. Mike, how did you find this exercise? Did you find it easier to do than when we did it in the preseason? Now that we have games to better judge these guys on, or did you find it harder because now maybe some preconceived notions were kind of blown up in your face, namely us having Chris Jones in the top three. (laughs) I found it pretty easy, to be honest with you, like compared yeah. to some of the positional groups, yes. uh, you know, receiver, running back, all that stuff. Compared to that, it, it was much easier. For sure. All right, let's get into it, Mike. Give us your power rankings of the league's nine head coaches, starting from nine, working your way all the way up to numero uno. At number nine, I have my boy, Chris Jones. It uh, He took a big drop from uh, from what I had him before the season started. I thought that... This would be a bounce back season for Edmonton. They would turn it around and be a playoff team. Obviously, that hasn't happened. It's been a real big mess in Edmonton. And for that reason, I have him at number nine. At number eight, I have Bob Dice. He still has a lot to prove in this league. I think he's a good coach, but I just don't know it for sure yet. He's a bit too small of a sample size. But I, I do like what he's done, you know, in the position that he's in. With Jeremiah Mazzoli going down with injury again, you know I think they're they've been doing pretty good. At number seven, I have Steinhauer. I just this 
there's been too many boneheaded decisions. There's been too many penalties, and that's on coaching. So for that reason, I have him drop into number seven. At number six, I have Moss, Jason Moss in Montreal. He's done a pretty good job, actually, in Montreal. I think he's exceeded expectations. You know, going into the year, in the offseason, they had that debacle with the ownership. And, you know, they lose Trevor Harris. They they lose their best receiver, Lewis. But they, they played pretty well uh, so far this season. Uh, at number five, I have Rick Campbell. I, I've never been high on Rick Campbell, as we've talked about many times on this show. And I thought that maybe he, you know, he had a really good year last year. But I thought that the Rourke effect was a big, big part of that. But he's shown that uh, he can coach a team with, you know, not the best quarterbacks in the league. You know, Vernon Adams has been really good, don't get me wrong, but he's never been an elite quarterback in the CFL. So I've been kind of impressed with Rick Campbell this year so far. Uh, Number four, I have Dave Dickinson. Why do I have Moss twice on this list? Oh, my God. Josh, what are you doing over here? Did right, you forget to put you? I was going to say, you're getting high up there, and I haven't heard Craig Dickinson's name yet. Did you forget to put Craig Dickinson somewhere? I did. Okay, I'm going to put tisk. Tisk, tisk on me. Okay, Craig Dickinson is num- is behind uh, <laughs> it's behind uh, Steinhauer. So I'm going to put... Okay, oh, so we're going to go... We're, so, we're going to shift. So, so, we're going to shift. Okay, okay. Steinhauer, uh, Dickinson's number seven. Because I just don't think he's a, a very good quarter or a very good coach in this league. He's been okay at times, you know. He's got them to two Western Finals and blah 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 whatsoever. But I, I I just don't have a lot of faith in him. So he's number seven. Steinhardt would be six. Campbell would be five, and then uh, Moss would be four on this one. Am I shifting here? And then Dickinson, Dave Dickinson at number three. I think he's fallen off a little bit this year. Um, maybe we're seeing that he's not as great as we we thought he was, right? I mean, Jeff, Jeff Huffnagel has stepped down in his role. Dickinson has taken the GM spot. So maybe he's not handling that as well as we thought he would, you know, being that dual role with, with the head coach and the GM. But he's still high up there at number three. Uh, number two, I have Dinwiddie. I, you know, early on in his career, there was a lot of people calling for his head. They thought that he wasn't a very good coach. Obviously, he is a good coach. He won the Grey Cup last year. He's got the Argonauts off to a great start. And I think he's working with a tremendous roster. So obviously that helps. Uh, You know, there's question marks about the quarterback. He's been, Kelly's played really well this season. So he slides in at number two. And I still have O'Shea at number one. You know, not you know, the, the Bombers haven't looked as good as they have in past years. But like we saw last week, they came out and absolutely torched the BC Lions, the second best team in the West. So I still think Michael O'Shea is a tremendous coach and deserves to be in that number one spot. Yeah, I was, I was listening to your list and I'm like, getting a little worried here that he thinks Craig Dickinson's a good head coach because no, this, no, no, no. this is very no. bizarre. So we have the... Pretty similar lists, to be quite honest with you. So I know we did these power rankings, but I kind of put them in like buckets almost of like of three. It, it didn't happen. It just I, when I sat down to do it, it just kind of happenstance happened this where I was like, oh, I could probably make these three guys interchangeable. And well, these three guys are kind of interchangeable. And then kind of at the top, there's a little bit of interchangeability there. But 
I'll start at the bottom here, like like we do. I have Craig Dickinson at nine, Chris Jones at eight, and Orlando Steinhauer at seven. But any order of nine through seven with those three to me would not be egregious. Uh, it would not surprise me in the least if all three of these men are out of jobs after the season, even though we just talked about the Ticats coaching job. I don't necessarily think he'll be fired, but if they did fire him, if this this goes off the rails and the team finishes out of the playoffs or something, I, I could see it happening. All three of these teams have disappointed to varying degrees. And while you could easily blame injuries for both Saskatchewan and Hamilton's struggle for Dickinson and Steinhauer, because they both did lose their preseason starting quarterbacks for long stretches now, but they both also tend to make some baffling decisions, which makes me question their effectiveness as a head coach going forward. Like we've seen Steinhauer make some curious challenges. We've seen Dave or Craig Dickinson make some really weird in-game decisions. It's just you start to wonder if maybe the the pressure of the moment gets to him a little bit. Both those guys also, interesting enough, kind of riding off on great 2019 seasons when they both finished with a combined, or they both finished first in the in their respective divisions. They combined for 28 wins that season. But we've kind of seen those teams, their teams, get worse every year after that. Jones is pretty self-explanatory. His team's awful. He spent way too much time believing in Taylor Cornelius. I won't even spend more. I don't think I have to justify Jones being this far down the list. We were both super high on him coming into the season. I thought he was a good head coach. Maybe the head coach is still good, but the general manager is not bad. But it's since it's the same dude, he gets judged in totality and Edmonton stinks. And if you want to say he's, he's the worst, I would, I just think he's a better coach. We've seen him do, we've seen him win a championship. Quite frankly, we haven't seen mm. Craig Dickinson do that. So I'm going to lean Jones just slightly ahead of Dickinson there. But again, like I said, all three of these guys are kind of interchangeable. At six, I actually have Jason Moss. I'd like Moss as a head coach more than most, maybe not as much as you do. I think he gets a bad rap for some of the sideline antics that he got into. I'm shocked that he's gotten this much out of Cody Fajardo, which makes me wonder what the problem was in Saskatchewan last year when Moss was the offensive coordinator and Fajardo was a starting quarterback there. But I also think the, the Al's who don't get me wrong. I know people are going to take this out of context. They are a better team than the tiger cats, but I also think that they're a bang average team with a bang average head coach. So middle of the pack, even if it's slightly further down, I still think makes sense at five. I actually have Bob dice. This is one where we differ quite substantially Mm -hmm. here. And I actually flirted with putting dice up higher, but he's still in that kind of embryonic stage of his career where he's making those rookie coaching errors. We saw it this week. They had third and goal from the one yard line against the, the riders they're down by two. They kick the field goal, but they left Saskatchewan with about 50 seconds left, and Saskatchewan goes down and easily kicks the game winning. Maybe not easily because it was a 50-something yarder, but got into field goal range rather rather quickly. You go for a touchdown there, maybe that's a different story, and maybe I actually rank dice higher. But that's what you get out of, out of rookie head coaches. They make these mistakes. they got to learn from their mistakes. I know he's been around the game for a long time, but this is his first real chance to be a head guy. And I think he's done a really good job considering the circumstances there. Mm-hmm. They're on their fourth quarterback, and apparently Dustin Crum looks like he could be something. So I I have to give Dice a lot of credit for what he's done there. And I think, again, once he starts to clean up these these rookie coaching errors, I think he'll get better. He'll start moving up higher on this list. But I think as of right now, the middle seems appropriate, uh, quite honestly. That's a big move, though, for Dice. I I had him last when we started this thing in the preseason. So he's shown me enough over over the first half of the season that I think he's a pretty darn good head coach. At four, I have Rick Campbell. I'm not going to lie. I do not think Rick Campbell is a good head coach. I think he's perfectly fine. I think he's perfectly adequate. 
I think he has surrounded himself with two excellent coordinators in Jordan Maximic and Ryan Phillips, both of whom I believe will be head coaching candidates at the end of the season. And Campbell has really only been as good as the coordinators around him. But the Lions are 6-2. and two. They went 12-6 and six last year. And quite frankly, none of the coaches below him have done anything to deserve being ranked ahead of him. So I don't love him as a coach. He's earned this ranking of being in the top half. You can be a hater. I said, I think I said this last week. I, I said it somewhere. You can be a hater and you not and think someone's not good enough or you, you don't like someone, but you have to you can't be an a dishonest hater. You have to say, hey man, he's he's shown me some stuff this year. Kind of like you did with Campbell mm-hmm. when you met, when you talked about where you had him. Yeah, he's shown enough that he kind of deserves this. At three, and also like, I will say sorry, sorry, but nope, I will ahead. say that it was a ballsy move last year to go with with Nathan Rourke. Rourke. Sure was. Yeah, because obviously like now we can say like, Oh, that was, that was an easy decision. Right. But at the time it was not, I mean, Rourke hadn't played much. He's a Canadian quarterback that, you know, we haven't seen a successful Canadian quarterback in years and years and years. And he went with him, And that was obviously a great decision on his part. Go back and listen to, I'll, I'll, I'll even, I'll throw us under the bus here. You can go listen to our season preview from 2022 Neither of us were high on the Lions, I don't believe. But go listen to any 2022 season preview talking about the BC Lions. I guarantee you that with maybe a minuscule few exceptions, no one had the Lions doing what they did last year. No one had uh, the Lions went into last year kind of, and maybe we should have learned our lesson, kind of with the same feelings that I had about the Argos, even though the Argos were coming off a, a Grey Cup victory. It's I got to see what they have at quarterback before I can really believe in this team. And Nathan Rourke played really well, but no one believed in the Lions going to last year. People can say, oh, I knew Rourke would be great. They're full of shit. Don't believe them. Okay, moving on. At number three, I have Dave Dickinson. I think if you give Dave Dickinson BC roster, or <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's English, Mr. Smith. If you gave <laughs> Dickinson BC's roster, they might be undefeated. I think that he's that good of a head coach. I have my questions about him as the general manager, but I think as a coach, he's getting the most out of what is perhaps the least talented team that he has had during his tenure there. Granted, some of that is his fault, like I said, because he is the GM. But Calgary's still kind of in the mix there. This is maybe the worst team they've had in 30 years. As, aside from the, you know, the post-Buono era where they were kind of bad for a couple seasons there. But he's still, I think, is still a pretty damn good head coach. Uh, number two, much like you, Mike, Ryan Dinwiddie. I was skeptical about him, like I was a lot of Argos hype this offseason, wasn't sold on him, but remaining skeptical about him now would just be foolish. When the Argos are fully healthy, they were an undefeated team. It took injuries in this last game and, you know, cross-country trips, and no team's going to go undefeated, but he's been excellent this year. They have owned the East Division for three years now. Back-to-back East Division titles have looked like they're well on the way to winning a third one. He has won a Grey Cup. Looks poised to, at worst, maybe coach another one this year. I wouldn't be surprised if Ryan Dinwiddie won multiple championships as head coach of the Toronto Argonauts. He'd be number one by a mile in this league if not for the man that I have at number one, which was the exact same as you. That's Mike O'Shea. The Bombers are still good. They are still in the mix to win the Grey Cup. O'Shea is still at the top of his game. I do wonder what will happen should O'Shea, should O'Shea take the GM reins next year. Because we've seen, we talked about it with the Ticats. Seen those dual role guys kind of struggle. It looks as if Kyle Waltz will be out. That's why I'm pressing so heavily for the Ticats to bring him in. But that's a concern for next season. For right now, he's still at the top of the coaching mountain. I don't think anyone would dispute that. I think even the biggest Argos homer and Ryan Dinwiddie guy would still say at this moment, 
Mike O'Shea is at the top of the heap. So I think that's a, a fair of us to both put him at number one. Not a ton of disagreement here, Mike. Uh, just kind of really just Bob Dice, really. Mm-hmm. You, I think I think you're taking a bit more of a wait-and-see approach. I maybe have been a little bit more uh, generous with with – Kind of kind of similar to the Taylor Powell stuff we talked about earlier. Maybe a little more generous because he's a first-year guy. But Ottawa looks competitive for the first time in half a decade. So they do. I, they do. That's, kind, that's kind of why I have Dice up as high as I do. Yeah, and I, I'm just feeling like I want to see what happens in a full season with Bob yeah. Dice. And then, you know, we'll see. At the, maybe we'll do, uh, you know, the rankings at the end of the year again. And he'll climb up the rankings if he, you know, makes the playoffs and makes a push. You read my mind. I was thinking we did preseason. We did kind of midseason near the tail end of the year. I think that's a good idea. We'll come back and do these once again. We'll do the quarterbacks, running backs, receivers, and, of course, the head coaches. All right, now let's move on. We're going to play our game this week. I know we, we've gone long here, but just stay with it. we got no game preview this week because the Ticats aren't playing. So we're going to end it with our game this week. We're going to play another rousing edition of One Correct Answer. Mike, are you ready? Let's do this. All right. Former Winnipeg Blue Bombers play-by-play man Bob Irving is no stranger to putting his foot in his mouth. He once famously said that the Saskatchewan Rough Riders should have their franchise revoked if they allowed an NFL preseason game to be played at Mosaic Stadium, only for that game to then be hosted at Winnipeg's IG Field. He was just joking about the Saskatchewan, though. He was just joking. Of of course he was. Of course he was. (laughs) He is notoriously a Bombers homer, which is fine, but he sent out a tweet Uh on Friday that said... Keep hearing Chad Kelly is the leading MOP candidate, but Zach Caleros was on pace for 5,000 yards. Kelly isn't. Zach's on pace for 36 TD passes. Kelly isn't. Zach's TD to interception ratio is 16 to 4. Kelly's is 8 to 4. And Zach has a higher QB rating, just saying. So Bob obviously has a right to his opinion, and Kelly has been getting a lot of MOP love to start the year. And Bob is right in that Caleros has been mostly excellent again this year as he was the last two years when he won MOP. So, Mike, the MOP frontrunner right now for you is A, Zach Caleros, B, Chad Kelly, C, someone else entirely. I'm going to go with Zach. And for the many of the reasons that Bob uh, listed, you know, he, he leads. He's second in passing yards in the league. He leads touchdown passes. At least this is after week eight. I'm looking at the, after week eight. Um, you know, he's his completions percentage is slightly below Chad Kelly. Uh, he is a 70.1. Chad's a 70.3. Uh, his QB rating is 115.5. Chad's Chad's is 110.5. Listen, I, I think I think it's Zach. And you know, Chad's been great. Don't get me wrong. And his, his team is is the best in the league right now. But I feel like. He is benefiting from being on that team and he he's played well and all that stuff. But I just think I look at these some of these stats and I got to go with Zach. All right. So I responded to this tweet by saying Bob Irving is going to make me defend Chad Kelly. And I said that before the most recent game where Kelly got hurt, missed missed the game, might even miss this up this week's upcoming game. Don't know yet. I'll, I'll concede that. Based on the raw numbers, it probably should be Zach. But he is not only competing against the other players this year, but his past self. As a two-time reigning MOP, his past seasons will be used against him if he doesn't surpass what he did before. Last year, I think he threw 37 touchdown passes. So if if his numbers are slightly diminished from a year before, 
there'll be a story. And again, it might not be right, but it's just the way it goes. There'll be a story out there. And Chad Kelly probably right now has the best story. I mean, we saw it happen with Anthony Calvillo on a number of occasions where he probably should have won MOP, but didn't because someone else was close enough and they were someone new and it was exciting and, and voters can get kind of voter fatigue. I mean, we saw it in the NBA this year with uh, Nikola Jokic. He was going for his third straight MVP. His numbers were probably better than his two previous MVP awards. But voter fatigue set in. They gave it to someone new because the numbers were close enough where you could justify the other guy. But I will say Kelly right now, I'm going to say that he should be the front runner. And I want to touch on Bob leaving out a few facts. And I'm glad that you mentioned the numbers as one of the reasons that you liked him. Kelly does only have nine touchdown passes as of now. I did I did the additional math. He threw one against. It was it was 16 to eight in comparison when Bob made his tweet. But after this week, it's actually 17 to nine. But he also has five but, rushing touchdowns and Calaris only has one. So total mm-hmm. touchdowns are 17 for Zach and 14 for Kelly, much closer than the 16 to eight comparison that Bob made. Kelly also has the same yards per attempt as Calaris, but has thrown 67 fewer passes. Part of that is Calaris has played one more game than Kelly, but part of it is also that the Argos don't ask Kelly to do as much as the Bombers. You know, the Bombers rely on Calaris to be the passing attack where the Argos are, are maybe, and I know the Bombers are a well-balanced team, but I think the Argos rely on the running game just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that's a, actually a point in Bob's favor. You know, you kind of dig into these numbers and they're much closer than Bob's surface area stats made it sound. But if it is a most outstanding player award, I understand it's not most valuable player. I just think that, you know, everyone listening knows that I've been as skeptical as anyone about Chad Kelly. And maybe he shouldn't be the front runner, front runner after nine weeks. But you read Bob Irving's tweets and those numbers, and I don't think it's as far-fetched an idea that Kelly should be out front because, like, you take total touchdown. Because, again, it is most outside. Like, if Kelly finishes if, – if let's say Zach finishes with 40 touchdown passes, more than he threw last year. And Kelly finishes with 28 touchdown passes and eight rushing touchdowns. 40 to 36, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a lot different than 40 to 28. You know what I mean? We have to take the totality of what these guys are doing. I still think, yes, Zach should probably be the front runner. But I also think that at this point in the season, it doesn't really matter. Like Kelly got hurt. That could knock him out of mm-hmm. – like they say it could only be a short-term thing. But I just think – I w- just wanted to use my time here to be like the numbers between the guys, like yards per attempt being the exact same tells you that, yes, Zach has a higher volume. But if Kelly had the same amount of opportunities, his numbers would be just as high. But again, that maybe that's a point in Bob's favor with the idea that Zach should be the front runner. I, I, I just think that this might be, again, I hate the fact that I'm defending Chad Kelly. I just think this race is a lot closer than, than and that's why I wanted to bring out Bob's tweet, specifically what Bob Irving said. It's a lot mm. closer than those numbers would indicate. Yeah, for sure. I think I think they're neck and neck, really. If, if you were to pull the voters, I think it would be a pretty close vote right now. Just because, you know, you, you take into consideration that Chad Kelly's in his first year. I mean, that's that could be part of it as well. I mean, yep. a rookie or not a rookie, but a second year guy, second year CFL guy coming in and, and doing what he's doing is pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I mean, this is also a case of we should just name it the most outstanding quarterback award, because yeah, why are we much. not talking? Why are we not talking about Austin Mack? who's putting up yeah. monster numbers. Why did Dalton Schoen not get any love for MOP last year when as a rookie won the triple crown in the CF? Like I it's, it's become so quarterback centric, like AJ Ouellette should probably be getting a little bit of love. You know what I mean? So I just wish that maybe we would expand the criteria for, uh, 
for most outstanding player, not just to be the best quarterback on the best team. Because, I mean, that's what you're going to see. Winnipeg is going to finish 13-5. and five. Toronto's going to finish 15-3, and three, let's say. And you're going to see people going, well, Kelly won 15 games. And it's like it, people just use the – again, and, and Bob was guilty of this too. Bob Irving was guilty of this too. Like, yeah, sure, it was 16-8 to eight when you made that tweet, Bob, but it was actually 16 16- – to 14. You know what I mean? Like it was, like, I just wish people would have yeah. more, maybe a more nuanced look at these things and not just go with the Straight tried up and true. stats. Yeah. Or just yeah. to try and true. Like it doesn't always have to be yeah. perfect. Let, let, let other players get in this conversation as well. All right. Saskatchewan <laughs> leader post columnist, Daryl Davis wrote a piece last week saying that the CFL needed to move the goalpost to the back of the end zone in an effort to increase the number of touchdowns scored. The crux of Davis's argument was that by moving the post back 20 yards to the outside the field to play, teams would be more inclined to go for it deep in opponent's territory. His example was that a team would go for it on third down and five if they were at their, say, opponent's 35-yard line. A field goal from there would now be, under Bob or under uh, Daryl's changes, a 63-yarder instead of a 43-yarder. And he posited that coaches would instead go for it as opposed to punting because, and this is a direct quote, a punt would be futile. So, Mike, this idea to move the goalpost back is A, the right one, B, the wrong one, or C, incredibly stupid. And before you answer, Mike and I did talk about this off off air, what, last week, I think it was. So we both, I, I think we both know where we're going here. But, Mike, tell the audience what your answer is. It's dumb and stupid and dumb. I I hate this idea. Like, who, how does it's he idiotic. know? How does he know that coaches are going to go for it on third and five? Like, does he has, uh, does he not watch CFL football anymore? I, no one has balls. Like, there's no coaching. No one has balls. Cowards. They're all a bunch of cowards. Anymore. Yeah. They, they, this only thing that this would accomplish is more punts, and that's the last thing the CFL needs is more punts. It's just, I don't know. I don't. I don't think he thought this through. And if he did think it through, he has the wrong idea because this would lead to more boring football it's not going to lead to more touchdowns there's they're going to play field but they play field position now yeah. we see coaches yep. punt from the 42 we mm-hmm. see coaches not go for it on third like wasn't there it was i was in, i think it was in the saskatchewan ottawa game this week i think one of the teams had a third and one i think ottawa had a third and one might have been i can't remember which one but a third and one deep in their own territory and punted. Now later in the game, they also had a sketch one, definitely had a third one, and they got stuffed. But it's like for the most part, coaches are going to do the conservative thing. Remember when they moved the two uh, the two point convert thing, and we saw. I mean, Orlando Steinhardt was going for two all the time, and then it just ended because coaches get scared. The c- coaches want they want to minimize as much risk as they can. So if it's third and five from the 35 yard line from your opponent's 35 yard line and the goalposts are in the back of the end zone, guess what? The punter's coming out on the field. It, I don't think this will increase scoring. I don't think this will increase touchdown mm-hmm. production. I just don't. I just think this is a dumb, like you said, dumb, stupid, stupid, dumb, dumb stupidness. <laughs> exactly. It's like, okay, so you punt. The only part, sorry, you, sorry, just to cut you out. Do, the yeah, only part ahead. I agree, the only part I agree with him about is if you do it from a player safety perspective, because then the, then the, Goalpost is in the middle of the freaking end zone. I, I yeah. understand that. If you tell me you're doing it for that reason, I'll buy it. But the, the whole increasing scoring thing makes no sense. No, because coaches are going to think, okay, we're at the 35-yard line. That's a really long field goal. Let's punt. And they'll the other team, they have to 
drive to the 30 yard line to even get into field goal range. So there's going to be more punting and more pinning teams deep. And, you know, there's one of the big complaints of the CFL football is there's too many from outsiders is there's too many punts and this would increase the punts and it's just not a very good idea. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be coaches wanting to pin teams deep and Mm -hmm. maybe, 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 you know what, maybe it'll increase rouges. That's what it'll increase, which Uh, is, you know, something we all love to see, but no, coaches will punt. They'll try to pin teams inside the 10-yard line and then be like, well, now instead of having to go 60 yards to get a field goal, they got to go 85 yards. And yep. most teams don't drive that far. So, no, I don't think this is going to work one bit. It is dumb. We are in agreement on this one. All right, last one before we get out of here. It was brought to people's attention this week that the CFL transactions page, which is the web page where people can go to see all the moves that teams have made, sometimes before they've even been announced, has not been updated since July 23rd. For those listening, for you guys listening, it's maybe Monday, August 7th, perhaps Tuesday, August 8th. Well, admittedly, not a huge deal. This does feel to me at least like another example of the CFL becoming far more secretive and less open than they have been in the past. So, Mike, the CFL failing to update the transactions page is A, a big deal, B, not really a big deal, C, no deal at all. I'm going to say it's a big deal because of just the totality of fuckery that we've seen from the CFL this year with their stats page and their, you know, just, just a incompetence on their part to get anything right. It seems. And like, I'm just sick of it. Like, I I, I don't know. I, it just seems like there, they, there's no, there's not enough people working on things for them or they just don't, care or they they've got into bad relationships with genius sports that doesn't care about the league uh it, it's a bad look for the league and it, and it, time after time we're seeing it from them whether it be the all-star voting last year or the stats page this year or the transactions page this year or it could go on and on and on so uh it's a big deal because they just keep messing up yeah in a vacuum it's no deal at all but in relation to everything else this is a huge deal like the cfl office this season like i i even forgot about the all-star thing but i'm glad you brought it up it's like they drop more balls than a castrator with parkinson's disease man like <laughs> it's and maybe that was rude of me to say but i thought it was funny so I said it. <laughs> you know what i mean though like it's just another example of this league doing and i think i sent a tweet i don't remember if i sent it out i think i might have sent it out from our our show account actually it's getting really really hard much harder than it ever has been to defend this stupid league sometimes Mm -hmm. and it's like we're diehard fans we we do a podcast like yeah it's it's my job as well but at the same time it's like I, i started like everyone else as a fan it's like when people knock the league there's certain things that you can you can fight back on. Yep. The fact that it's 2023 and this league is going in reverse when it comes to openness while every other league is going is is doing the opposite. This used to be a league that innovated and now it's a league that seems like they're two steps behind and getting further and further behind every time something happens. You mentioned the stat stuff that is still we are about to hit week 10. We are in August. We are almost at like we're a month away from Labor Day and we still don't have a functioning stats page, a functioning website with historical data and real time stats. That is a travesty for a professional sports league 
in the year of our Lord 2023. This transaction thing, like I said, in a vacuum, ah, big deal. Who cares? This, this, it's a niche thing that that very few of us actually look at. But it's just another example of this league just doing everything it can to drive away its hardcore fan base, essentially. Because the people who look at this are hardcore fans and, in some cases, maybe media people. Mm-hmm. Television ratings are up. Attendance is up. These, all the trage- this league is, you know, trending in the right direction. But you keep doing these, like, self-inflicted wounds that I just don't under- like. Easily correctable, easily avoidable mistakes. The CFL League office is the Hamilton Tiger Cats of 2023. They just keep t- taking dumb penalties and doing things they don't have to do, and it's just, again, like I said. In in as its own thing, who gives a crap? As a large, as a bigger picture thing, just another instance of this league looking like they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, and it's like if 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 we were just casual fans, like you know, it would be fine. Just give me the games on TV, I'll watch them and move on. But as someone who you know, I wouldn't say, I guess I would say covers the team. You know, it, it's absolutely. tough. What you're talking about yourself? You absolutely. Yeah, cover this team. yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah you're, myself. you're 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 one of five of us that do that. That, that there's not f- five other people on this planet that cover the team as in depth as you do. Thank you, Josh. And uh, yeah, it's tough. Like it's just like I want to know everything. I I sh- I you know I want to dig deep, but this league makes it tough to at times. And I can see damn the near impossible. It makes it damn near impossible yeah. to do it. Yeah. And I can understand the frustration from from media members that are like, how are we supposed to cover this league properly? And even like you know they want to get into the betting stuff. Bingo. People want to know if if the you know the guy went over on their yards or they want to know the stats and to see if they won money or not. Like this is a bigger issue than just oh we can't check out the stats after the game. No, it matters. It really does matter, especially in the world that we're living in right now with the gambling and the betting and all that stuff. When there's no confidence from the public that you're getting accurate information, things like gambling deals will dry up eventually. It mm-hmm. can only last so long before people are like. Because like one of the one of the fun things about gambling on we'll use the NFL as an example because it's the most gambled on sport in the world. Mm-hmm. You you can sit down even if you're not watching a game you can go on the NFL website and you can track stats. You know what I mean? So you're like, oh man, I got Tyree Kill for over 81 and a half receiving yards. And I'm sure there's a segment of the people listening to this that don't give a flying fuck about gambling, but a lot of people do. It's a huge money maker, and the league wants to get in on this because there's money to be made from 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 sponsorships like this. I can go on a on a whether it's the NFL website, I can Google it if I want to and find those stats. Can't do that with the CFL. And that's a big for a league that wants to grow, they're doing everything they can to stifle that growth and it's just it doesn't have to be this way, which makes it even more frustrating, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they don't even have a working app anymore. It's like, guys, we're in 2023. Yeah. We need to step it up yeah. a little bit here. And I don't know if they they just don't have the people to make it work or they they don't have the money or or what's the deal. But there's probably a million excuses they could use, but none of them are good enough in my eyes. Just just fix it. You're a professional league. You want to be considered, you know, one of the big boys. Right. Well, we can't do that if you're if you're messing up this often. For sure. All right. We're going to end this on a good note. There's no Ticats game to discuss this week because they're on a bye. So we don't have to talk ourselves into how they can beat a team that they probably won't beat. Although their next game is a very winnable one. They are playing the Edmonton Elks, but we will get into that 
Next week, we have gone exceedingly long, maybe our longest episode of the season so far. But uh, we will be back next week to discuss all things Ticats as they get back to preparing for the Edmonton Elks. We'll obviously preview the game against the Elks next Thursday and then whatever other CFL nonsense comes up. I'm sure something will happen in the world of CFL that'll get us talking. So we'll be back next week with all that stuff. Until then, that is Podski Weaver for this week. I am Josh Smith. And I'm Mike Graham. Eat them raw. Eat them raw.